to sort of launch all of that, this morning I'm going to talk about being with Jesus. Because it's sort of the kind of crucial component of prayer, that we are with Jesus in prayer. And so I want to do that by talking a little bit about vines this morning. And typically when we think of the imagery of vines and the concept of bearing fruit, in Scripture we sort of come up with this particular image in our heads. This beautiful, blissful thought that the concept of vines and bearing fruit is sort of lush and delicious and delightful and perfect in many ways and uh, just sort of beautiful. This sort of beautiful concept of vines and bearing fruit. And sometimes when we first meet Jesus, this is how it actually feels on the inside, it may, it may not always look that way um, to everyone else around us, but there's sort of this sense of this like beauty and delight and, and, and sort of organized prettiness that we sort of view in our heads. But what we forget when it comes to the concept of vines is that this particular image took years to accomplish. It takes an average grapevine five years to produce any fruit, and it may not even be good fruit yet. It's just it produced something. And it takes six-plus years for a vine or a grape plant to begin to mature. And then they're refined more and more over 50 to 100 years. But this does not happen without a lot of intentionality from the farmer, health factors like environment, location, weather, dedication to the plant. Without all of that, what you get looks more like this. Now, this is a little bit more what you would expect to see without 50 years of dedication and intense planning and intentionality and structure and knowledge and awareness. And when we think of vines or a grape plant, we often think of the first picture. Because it's what we get to enjoy when we buy grapes at the store. And so we automatically sort of envision that space and we forget the intricacy of vines, their propensity towards weed, Overgrowth that leads to dead branches, leaves that dry up and fall off. One Google search about grapes. They spent a lot of time on the internet thinking about grapes this week, FYI. Um, a lot of time looking at and reading about. Um, it did help that my dad grows grapes, so I have some, I have some non-internet-based research here. Um, but Google searching about grapes leads to this sort of most common question, which is, why hasn't my vine produced grapes? And the majority of the time, someone has been working on their plant for 10 years. And now, 10 years later, they're finally going, okay, it's about time. We should have something to show for the 10 years. So why isn't my vine producing any grapes? What is causing the leaves to wither up and dry? Because there's an intricacy to 
divines that we forget about. And when you look at this picture and the number of weeds that are now tangled in to all of the branches, it is a no wonder that you and I get tangled up into things that are not Jesus. Because there is no famine of things out there to believe in. The challenge becomes when we think that the things to believe in that are Jesus, when we think that the weeds will be easily recognizable, and because they're easily recognizable, we can also easily avoid them. But let me show you this picture of two plants. One is a completely obnoxious and insane weed that overgrows entire departments of whole roadways and everything, and the other one is a grape vine. And on a good day, they look pretty similar. Until you see that this is the weed situation versus that. Now, based on those leaves, we would not have foreseen that outcome. Now, with those pictures of weeds and vines and grapes, uh, let's read John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." There are three things that happen when we wander from the vine. One, we become susceptible to weeds. Remember that picture of how close the weed looked to the grapevine plant? The farther we get, the harder it is to tell the difference. So not only are we more susceptible to weeds, we also can't recognize them as easily. Because we're so far from the vine that they all just sort of start to look the same. And when we meet Jesus, we are an overgrown mess. And tomorrow, after having met Jesus, we are not a perfectly cleaned up on the outside in every way uh, kind of vineyard. Yes, we have Jesus. Yes, we have 100% clean by the name of Jesus. And yes, Jesus has a little bit of work to do in our own hearts. It's not one confession and bam, we bore all the fruit and we're good to go. And we have this sort of perfect and amazing setup. It's years of pruning and growing and following and staying close to the vine. We go through seasons and we all end up in spaces where we wander to different degrees 
where we are close in some seasons and not others, and weeds creep in and begin to potentially overgrow. The second thing that happens to us when we wander from the vine are that we think we need to prune the branches around us. (laughs) Because the farther we get from the vine, the more of the weeds we see and the more we think that maybe Jesus isn't doing Jesus' job. And it might seem a little bit odd, but the farther we get from Jesus, the more likely we are to start seeing all of the things that are going on around us. And we might have become more susceptible to weeds. And so then by our own guilt of how many weeds are now in our vineyard, we start wanting to clean up other people's vineyards because that might make us feel better about our own. But you know what happens when someone doesn't know how to prune a grapevine and they try to? So that number one question, why isn't my grapevine after 10 years producing any more fruit, was answered by the professionals 99% of the time with you are pruning it wrong. Pruning wrong equals no fruit. That's why we can't prune other people's branches. And there are some ways that we can know if we're in a position where we have begun to prune other people's branches. Sometimes there are things that in our minds that we may think or say that could trigger us to know that we are beginning to uh, be far enough from the vine that we feel that it is our job to prune someone else's branches. And they are really any type of list we make of someone else's sin. Anything that you bring to the pastor to say, please preach on what they're doing, um, or any moment where you're like, I don't like what they're wearing, or those sort of superficial things that we talk about here that that aren't going to matter in the long run. Jesus said this about such things. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Here's another reminder from the book of James 4.12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you who are you to judge your neighbor. We cannot produce fruit in ourselves or in anyone else by doing any of the pruning for Jesus. And one of the things about following Jesus closely is that we only see the beauty of that first picture. Because we're close to Jesus. And we see how being so close to the vine produces beautiful fruit. And then we begin to want that for everyone else. And the difference in what we want for them is that we want them to be close to Jesus because this is what we're experiencing. The further we get and the more weeds that there are, the more likely we are to want them to have the outcomes or the behaviors or the sort of stipulations or rules or regulations that we have. And so when what we want for someone is very practical to our life, and maybe what we want, as opposed to 
when we just want them to be close to Jesus? It's a signal for us. So then the third thing that happens as we begin to wander from the vine is that we forget that being with Jesus is what produces fruit. We are transformed by the experience of being with Jesus and being loved by Jesus. But the farther we get from the vine, the more we have to try and bear fruit on our own. The more we allow ourselves to get tangled up in the weeds, the more we try to bear fruit on our own. And sometimes we even get to a space where we allow ourselves to get tangled up in some weeds because the weeds have berries and we're going to overlook the fact that they're poisonous because at least they've figured out how to produce fruit. And maybe if they figured out how to produce fruit, I can learn something about producing fruit by just sliding in next to them. Because even though they're poisonous berries, at least they have the producing fruit thing figured out. We cannot be in a place where we share the love of Jesus unless we are being transformed by the love of Jesus. Because otherwise we share the things we want, the things we know, the things that we read about, but not the love of Jesus. And it's not just that one time we experience the love of Jesus and then from there on out everything we ever share is the love of Jesus. But that we are continually being transformed by the love of Jesus. And we are transformed by the love of Jesus when we are with Jesus. And the moment that our transformation stops is the moment that our disciple-making stops. Because what was once an overflow of our transformation to our friends, our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, and beyond, what was once this sort of overflow of the love of Jesus and how it had moved within us is now a class or a strategy or a plan or a to-do list or a checkbox somewhere. Or maybe it's just not my season to share Jesus. Once something stops happening naturally, we don't go back to the moment where it was happening naturally. We go to a new thing that might be better or more helpful or enough of whatever because we get in this train of thought that maybe we don't know enough, maybe we haven't figured enough out, maybe we haven't, whatever it is. We need to schedule it. We need a better plan. We need a different personality. And it's okay to have plans. It's okay to have strategies. It's okay to put telling your neighbor about Jesus on a checklist if you are doing it out of the transformation that Jesus has done in you. Every great story in Scripture of disciple-making comes out of a moment where someone's life was transformed by Jesus. Jesus. 
And there's a story that we've talked about before of one person who met Jesus in the middle of her life. And that's the woman at the well. At one point, Jesus was traveling, and he stopped for water. At this time, men, especially Jesus and his particular religious and ethnic background, wouldn't have been talking to women, let alone been talking to this particular woman. But he meets this woman, and he asks her for some water at the well. And she challenges him on talking to a woman, and she kind of says, what do you think you're doing? Like, what's your plan here? Like, don't you think someone could be watching this situation? And so he begins to tell her her story. And this is where the transformation begins to happen. He told her that he knew that she had been married five times. And that the man she was with was not her husband. She is surprised that he knows this, and, and many times throughout history we've taken this story and sort of been like, wow, what a sinner. Jesus knew her story. What happened in culture at this time more than likely is that a woman who had been married five times had likely been discarded or widowed five times. And so in this story, he doesn't say, you're this great sinner and you've got all these problems and we're going to have to figure this out. Um, he says, hey, I know your story and I know your pain, and I know what you've walked through. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot of details, simply that Jesus knew her story, and that she is amazed. So she says, I've heard of this one that is coming, and he will know everything. I've heard of this person that can heal and can save and restore. I have heard of this person who is coming. And it says in John 4, 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then, remember that moment where she was like, do you think anybody could see this? Here's the moment where the people see it. The disciples return, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, this is a really important phrase, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they made their way out of the town towards Jesus. If there was ever someone who wanted Jesus to explain the world, to explain what was happening, to break down where hope showed up in all the moments, it's probably a woman who is living with a massive amount of community bias over being discarded or being caught in something or being widowed over and over and over. And out of being with Jesus, she learns that her story is known to Jesus and then encourages everyone else to come meet Jesus who also knows their story. 
This is really important language because so often we think about the things we want people to know, like Jesus can save you, Jesus knows everything, Jesus whatever, and we go through these things of how would we tell someone about Jesus, and her opening line was, come see the Jesus that knows who I am. And they all said, maybe he'll know who I am too. Because we always say things like, Jesus knows what we've been through. We say things like, Jesus knows me. Or Jesus can see everything. Sometimes we think that's really great, sometimes not so much. Um, If you don't remember a few years ago, we realized that the most Googled question about Jesus was, can he see my internet history? Um, And so (laughs) there are times where we want Jesus to know everything, but we usually, in the back of our heads, we know, like, Jesus knows, right? And so, depending on your upbringing, whether it was a highly sort of judgmental or rules-based upbringing, or whether it was a very grace-based upbringing, Jesus knowing everything is either really good or really bad. Um, But we typically have that frame of mind, that somewhere in there, Jesus knows. Jesus knows whatever it is. But the difference in this situation is that she went to tell everyone that Jesus knows. And we go to tell people that Jesus knows. And we internalize with our knowledge that Jesus knows. We read the scriptures, we hear the stories, and inside of our heads we say, Jesus knows. But the difference is that she sat with Jesus long enough to hear him tell her her story. And in the middle of him telling her her own story, he's weaving hope into it. Because I could know you, and I could tell you what I know about your story, and it could do absolutely nothing for you. Because you could sit there and go, yeah, duh, that happened to me. Like, I know that. Like, I wrote that story. It's my life. And you're like, why are you telling me what I went through? Like, it wouldn't be the same for any of us to go tell anyone their story because sitting with Jesus and hearing Jesus tell us our story and intertwine in all of the places where he was working and how he was working and what he was doing, that is what transforms we can say, I know Jesus knows everything, but not feel the hope intertwined in what we went through if we don't sit with Jesus. And so as we enter into a time of communion this morning, where we get the opportunity to be with Jesus The question that I have for us this morning is, has Jesus told you your story? Have we sat with Jesus long enough to hear him intertwine hope into all of our experiences, the good ones and the bad? Has Jesus told us our story?